Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. Well, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Really glad uh, to be with you this morning. I'm excited to unpack God's uh, word this morning. Uh, but real quick, just uh, some family business um, before we jump in. Uh, uh, for those of you that are visiting or for those that of you are new, uh, for those of you who have been here for a while, this is going to sound like a broken record. Uh, but we're in the uh, transition period of looking for a new lead pastor. And uh, we uh, have received uh, from our district office uh, some great surveys that will help our leadership team uh, uh, get, collect some data and some information to make some uh, wise decisions about who that next uh, lead pastor will be. So we need your help in filling out that survey. Today is the last day to do that. Uh, we have them in hard copy uh, available at our information desk. You can fill one out. It'll take you five minutes even before you leave today. Uh, or uh, you can go on our website. Uh, just fill it out uh, online there. But please get that in uh, by today. That will uh, help our leadership team tremendously. Uh, well, if you've got your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open them up to the book of Exodus chapter 12. I want to do one thing this morning. I want to prove something. Uh, and that something is this. Every story is God's story. Every story is God's story. From Genesis all the way across thousands of years of history to this moment right here, right now, you and me, that is all God's story. In fact, I'd argue it's the same story. God has been telling the same story since Genesis. And he's telling the same story this morning for you and for me if we claim to follow Jesus. And that story has one central focus and that is the gospel every biblical story points to christ every single story you read in the scriptures points to jesus we're going to read about a story in exodus which happened over four thousand years ago that same story is really the story of us as christians the story of Moses is really the story of Christ. And that can be our story this morning. Every story is God's story. I, drew, uh, I grew up a, a church kid. Um, I lived in the church. I was just there constantly. My parents were, were heavily involved. Uh, and I would often say something like this. If you're a church kid, uh, you can probably relate to this statement. My testimony is so boring, right? Uh, I, never, I didn't have a crazy conversion story. I, didn't, I wasn't like on a mountaintop and God just made things start levitating and an angel appeared before me and was like, I'm going to save you. Like, uh, I didn't have that kind of conversion story. I, I didn't have some crazy past where I was like uh, sleeping around and into drugs and in prison and then God's like, I'm going to save that guy. Like, that wasn't uh, my past, and so it, it just seemed like my testimony compared to others was so boring. I said that uh, a time or two growing up, and if you've grown up in the church, you probably uh, can relate to that statement. But here's the problem with that kind of talk. Number one, it fails to take into account that my story isn't really about me. I am not the main character of my own story. If I am the main character of my story, my story will simply just point to me. But if I get out of the way, and, and I, if I get out of the way and not just become a supporting actor, but literally become an extra, because what's an extra's job? An extra's job is to not do as much so that the focal scene, the focal point of what's going on can grab the attention. If I'm an extra and just dancing around in the background, then I'm taking focus away from what's going on in the front, right? Or, or what, what the main scene is. If I'm an extra in my story, I want to point to something greater than myself. And that something greater is Christ. 
Every person in the Bible points to someone greater. And that person is Christ. It's also failing to realize that my story isn't simply an isolated incident. I'm not some novel when it comes to God's story. I'm simply a chapter. I'm simply a sentence in God's great story. Likewise, every story in the Bible is just one small part of this great story that God is telling. Therefore, if every story is God's story, and I want to enter into that story, or as a Christ follower, I'm saying I'm part of this story, then when I say my story is boring, essentially what I'm saying is that, God, you are boring. You are a boring storyteller. If my story is part of his, then, you, then, 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 then he is boring. But our God is not boring. Our God is a rescuer. Our God is a liberator. Our God is a redeemer. Our God is a master. And he doesn't prove those things in some theology class using grand terms. He proves that on the very stage of history. And if you claim to serve him this morning, then your story right now is meant to be seen as part of his great drama that he has been spinning since creation. Your story is his story. The story of the scriptures is our story. And that's anything but boring. Or as Gloria uh, Furman says, I love this quote. The idea that anyone's testimony of blood-bought salvation could be uninteresting or unspectacular is a defamation of the work of Christ. God has been telling the same story since creation. The story of redemption for his people. And it all leads back to God and his saving work. He is the main character. The stories of Exodus that we're going to read this morning, just like every other story in the Bible, point us to Christ. Every story is God's story. This morning we're going to read uh, about two events that actually make up one story in uh, the book of Exodus. And we're going to see that every story is really God's story. Well, the first event is found in Exodus 12 that we're going to read about. So hopefully you're there. It's the second book in the Bible. Uh, I'm going to be reading out of a fun translation that I really like. It's called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Now, if that sounds like a lot, it's not a cult Bible. Uh, This isn't like endorsed by the Mormons or anything like that. Uh, This is just a really, really, really good translation. A lot of people uh, haven't necessarily heard of it because it's a little bit newer, uh, but they do such a good job with the Old Testament. So uh, if you're looking for a new Bible translation, which I encourage you to read multiple ones of the English language, uh, snag this one, especially if you're going through the Old Testament. All right. Exodus 12, starting in verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the leaders of Israel and said to them, Go, select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and brush the lentil and the two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lentil and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and for your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you are to observe this ritual. When your children ask you, what does this ritual mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. So the people bowed down and worshipped. Then the Israelites went and did this. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. Now, at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. 
He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get up, leave my people, both you and the Israelites, and go. Worship the Lord as you have asked. Take even your flocks and your herds as you asked and leave. And this will also be a blessing to me. Now, if you were here last week, uh, I talked a lot about how Moses grew up and his upbringing. And we left Moses off last Sunday sitting on a rock at 80 years old. He's a fugitive for murder. He's living out his days as a shepherd, uh, rejected by his own people in a land that's not his own. And yet he's believing in the middle of that circumstance that God will somehow, some way, rescue his people. Well, Moses has come a long way since last week. Uh, God meets him in a burning bush and he invites Moses back into the story. And he says, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him that the Israelites belong to me. And I want you to bring them out of Egypt. But Pharaoh's not going to listen, is he? And so God sends plagues on Egypt in order that Pharaoh would let the Israelites go. There's 10 plagues that God sends on Egypt. And the 10th one is the one that we just read about. But the 10th plague is unique. It's unique from the other nine. And it's unique in this way. The first nine plagues, when God entered into Egypt to bring these plagues on the people, he simply spared the Israelites because he saw where they were. He simply spared the Israelites because they were God's chosen people. And so even though these plagues were happening, he protected the Israelites from being inflicted by these plagues. But the 10th plague is unique because that's not what happens in the 10th plague. In the 10th plague, God doesn't look at the Israelites and that's why they're protected. God looks at the blood and that's why they are protected. See, the plagues are actually meant to gain freedom from the Egyptians. But what's so interesting about the 10th plague is that it doesn't just secure the freedom from the Egyptians, but the Israelites are trying to escape the judgment of God. If you didn't have the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, then you were not spared, whether you were an Egyptian or an Israelite. This means the Israelites are not simply innocent victims, but that they were equal with the Egyptians when it came to their place before God. Now, if every story is God's story, let's kind of take a a sneak peek in here from our vantage point. Our 21st century minds, our 21st century culture, we are uncomfortable with this, right? If we're just honest, we're uncomfortable. Uh, And we're uncomfortable with a lot of the things in the Old Testament, but we're kind of uncomfortable with this. What do you you mean death is the judgment of God? That sounds rather unloving. What what did the Israelites do to deserve this? And if we're going to see ourselves in this story, does this mean that we deserve this kind of judgment, that death is the judgment we face? Well, the Bible, in fact, does say that very thing. It says the wages of sin is death. That means death for the Egyptians, death for the Israelites, and death for you and for me. Sin, when we commit it, the natural consequence is death, according to the scriptures. But I would argue that we even know this intrinsically. We, we know this to be true, that when we sin, death is the proper consequence for sin. If I were to run down the aisle right here and I were just to slap everyone upside the head as hard as I could and then run right back up on stage, what's going to be the consequence of that? I'm probably going to get fired. A fight might break out. Some of you are going to be like, this was the awesomest service I ever went to. The pastor went crazy. Uh, it would be a weird uh, cir- uh, circumstance, but that would probably be the, the consequence of what happened. But let's say the Queen of England comes in through the door and I run down that aisle and as hard and as aggressively as I can, I slap the Queen of England across the head. What's happened to me then? That's the last you will ever hear of John Randall. 
uh, I will be in a dungeon somewhere. Why does the severity of the consequence change for the exact same action? It's because of who it's committed against. If we turn our backs on the creator of the world and go our own way, which is what sin is. Sin is saying, God, I don't want your way. I don't believe you know what's best for me. I'm going to go live my own way. I know what's best for me and I will do what I want. That's, that's what we're doing when we sin. If we reject the creator of the world and turn our backs on him, what's the opposite of life? Death. Creation literally means to make life. God is the creator. God is the one who possesses life. So if we turn our back on him, then the natural consequence should be death. You actually see this play out in the first nine plagues. The first nine plagues throw creation into chaos. It's, it's a disruption of the natural order of things when God intervenes with these plagues. And the last one results in death. When we sinned, we threw the created order into chaos. And the natural consequence of sin is death because of who we have rejected, the one who possesses life. Here's what's interesting about this story. The text says that in every house in Egypt, someone died. That is a true statement. Because either an Egyptian firstborn or an Israelite firstborn died or a lamb died. But there was death in every house. That means that the lamb was a substitute. But again, peering into the story from our 21st century vantage point, we will look at that and say, how's that fair? A lamb for a human? That's not fair. Those aren't equal. And I would say that you're right. And that is precisely the point of the story. Because this story points to a much bigger story. A story about another lamb. And this lamb doesn't just take away the death of Israel on one night. This lamb takes away death for all mankind on every night. John the Baptist in the New Testament when Jesus comes onto the scene, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. First Peter one through, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 19 says it this way, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver, silver or gold, but with, precious, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb, without defect or blemish. If you still wish to say, how is it fair that God traded a lamb for the firstborn of Israel, or uh, the firstborn of every household in Egypt? If you're willing to say that that's unfair, then you must also look at the other Passover lamb, Jesus, and ask how it's fair that he, God in the flesh, was given as a substitute for you, a sinner and a human. The story of Exodus points to the story of Christ. And it's our story if we choose to take it because every story is God's story. Will we enter in? Will we, by faith, just like the Israelites, take the Passover lamb and its blood and put it on the doorposts of our hearts That when God looks at us, he doesn't see us and our sin, but he sees the blood. And the judgment of death does not fall. What I find, again, remarkable about this story is that God isn't just interested in liberating Israel from Egypt. That's not the end product of the story. It's not like God's like, all right, Israel, I'm going to rescue you from Egypt. And then once I do, it's like, see you later, have fun. 
I'll talk to you when you die and go to heaven. Like, that, that's not what God does when he liberates uh, Israel. That, liberating Israel is part of the story, but it's not the end goal. The end goal is that he wants to take Israel out of Egypt so that they can be his people, so that they can belong to him. We, we, you see this uh, early on in Exodus. Exodus uh, chapter 6, verses 67 say, Therefore, tell the Israelites, this is God talking to Moses, I am Yahweh, and I will deliver you from the forced labor of the Egyptians and free you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. There's the liberation part. There's the part where God's going to free him. But the verses aren't done yet. God moves on and says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who delivered you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. What we have in the story of Exodus when it comes to this liberation of Israel is a showdown. God, the creator of the world, the one who owns it all, versus Pharaoh, the greatest ruler in the world at that time, and Egypt, the greatest nation on earth at that time. Who does Israel belong to? God or Pharaoh? See, God isn't interested in just freeing Israel for liberty's sake. He's not interested in uh, allowing Israel to just be this free, autonomous, independent, belonging to no man nation. No, God actually wants to free Israel so that they can be governed by him, so that they can be dependent on God, so that they can belong to God. Israel is free, but it's not, they're not free to be their own masters. This isn't just a liberation. This is a transfer of power. The word redeem that we see in, in uh, Exodus 6 literally means to buy back. That means when God is coming into Egypt, he's, telling, he's buying back from Egypt his people. There's a transfer of power here. God is buying the Israel back from their cruel master in Egypt so that he alone can be their new master. In fact, the word choice in Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew language in Exodus actually demonstrates this. This is crazy. Exodus twelve thirty one. Pharaoh says this, Get up, leave my people, both you and the Israelites, and go worship Yahweh. That word for worship is actually better translated to work or to serve. And in fact, believe it or not, it's the exact same word to describe the slavery that the Israelites were in under the Egyptians. You see this all over the place in Exodus, but an example of this is Exodus 1.13. They worked. That word for worked, same word in Hebrew as the word for worship in verse 12 or verse 31 of chapter 12. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly. Worked, worship, same word in the Hebrew language. In other words, this is what this means. The Israelites were servants either way. The difference was this. Either they were going to remain servants and slaves to a cruel master in Egypt who wanted to lead them into death and destruction. In fact, you see this starting to play out. He's literally trying to exterminate the Israelite people. Or God would come in as a rescuer and liberate them in order that they would have a new master and they would be servants of him. But unlike Egypt, God is a good master. Unlike Egypt, who wants to lead Israelites into death, God wants to lead the Israelites into life. That's the difference. Leviticus 11.45 says this, For I am Yahweh, who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, so you must be free. Is that what that text says? That's not what it says. It says, so you must be holy as I am holy. Holy essentially means to be separated for God's purposes. It means to actually be conformed more and more into the image of God. I rescued you 
from Egypt so that you would look like me, so that you would be mine, not just so that you would be free to go do what you want. But again, this story points to a much greater story because every story is God's story. Israel was bought back from Egypt at the price of a lamb. But the entire world was bought back from their cruel master of sin at the price of the lamb, Jesus. In fact, if you go read 1 Corinthians, Paul literally calls Jesus the Passover lamb. As we enter into this story, where do we find ourselves? Is our master sin, which will ultimately lead to death? Or is our master Jesus, who wants to lead us to life? Who are you serving today? Who are you a slave to today? Sin and its consequence being death or Jesus and its reward being life. Romans 6 talks about this for the Christian. It says this. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to. There's that transfer. We've been transferred uh, from one master to the next, from a cruel master to a good master. And having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. Fruit produces naturally. Sin naturally produces death. Going on, it says, but now since you have been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification. That word means to be holy. And the end is eternal life. If we've been saved by the Passover lamb, Jesus, then we are free from our cruel master of sin. But we are not free to be our own person and our own master. We are not the main character of our story. Our new master is Christ. He's the main character of our story. We will be slaves either to sin, which leads to death, or to Christ, which leads to life. But unfortunately, uh, like the Israelites, I think for many of us, we, we mess this up. And even though we are free from sin, we tend to drift back. We tend to fall back into our old patterns. We tend to listen to our former masters of sin and death. We tend to go back. Our new master is Christ. And he will lead us into life. And he has freed us from sin. But simply being told that one time doesn't always result in obedience. Consider our, story, uh, our country's own story with slavery. Consider the many, many, many African Americans the day that they were freed from their masters. They could have run through the streets saying, I am free! Because according to the law, they were free in every sense of the word. But consider what they must have felt when they were walking on the street and they saw their old master. Those feelings of shame, those feelings of bondage, those feelings of still believing, even though they were free, still believing that that master held power over them. See, simply being told one time that you are free doesn't always result in obedience. We need to embrace that freedom that Christ has given us. There's a second event in this story that will show us how. Flip over to Exodus 14. Exodus 14, starting in verse 10. 
the Israelites had been freed at this at this point, and they were at the crossing of the Red Sea. And it says this, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and saw the Egyptians coming after them. Then the Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you took us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us all alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. He will provide for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army, and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptians and Israelite forces. The cloud was there in the darkness, yet it lit up the night. So neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided and, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. Then during the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw them into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord overthrew them in the sea. The waters came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. None of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. Now let me ask you a question. Were the Israelites free before or after they crossed the Red Sea? They were, they were free before they crossed that Red Sea. Moses, or, uh, Pharaoh had let them go. And yet, what, what is the Israelites' response when they come up against the Red Sea? We'd rather go back to our old master. We'd rather go back. But Moses tells them three things. These three things are this. First one, don't be afraid. Why? I don't believe it's necessarily because God was about ready to part the seas. I think Moses is saying, don't be afraid because God has already beaten Egypt. The Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. You've already survived the judgment of God. I've already freed you from Pharaoh. The victory is already mine. You already belong to me. Don't be afraid. The second thing he says is stand firm. Why? Why would you surrender back to your former slave master when you have a new one? A new one that will fight for you. And the third thing is be still or be quiet. Why? Because the people wanted to take control of their situation because they didn't believe God was in control anymore. In that moment, before they crossed the Red Sea, the Israelites forgot who they belong to. They forgot their Redeemer who bought them back from Egypt. They forgot that their new master 
wanted to impart them life, not death. Now, these three things that Moses shares are not a passive faith. Unfortunately, I think sometimes this text gets taught of like, you just need to have enough faith. You just need to believe enough and God will intervene. As if you can just sit and stick your head in the sand and just say, la, 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 to all of the world's problems and God will just somehow show up. But that's not what this text is saying. Because didn't the Israelites still have to pass through the sea? They still had to walk through on dry land. That's not passive. But make no mistake, there would have been Israelites with all kinds of experiences as they walked through that sea. Can you imagine there would, there would have been an Israelite that would, probably would have been doing this. I'm going to die, 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 right? Like, there, that, that would have been happening if that was, uh, or if, if, if you put yourself there. There would have been an Israelite that would have been like that. Or there would have been an Israelite walking through all kinds of confidence, right? Like, this is so cool. Like, they would have gone up to the side of the ocean and been like, how is God doing this? Like, poking it uh, in there. And then some other guy behind him was going to be like, don't do that. It's going to collapse. Uh, This would have been the experience of the Israelites as they walked through on dry land. There would have been all kinds of quantities and qualities of faith. But it didn't matter because God is the one who held that ocean. God is the one who saved. God was the one who was in control because it's his story. But as we know, if you keep reading in Exodus, this is not the last time the Israelites forgot who they belonged to. Over and over and over and over again, you see the Israelites in the wilderness forgetting what God had done for them, how God had rescued them. There are roughly over two dozen direct references to the Red Sea crossing in the Old Testament after the account we just read. Why? Because God is trying to remind the Israelites, this is who you belong to. Look at what I've done for you. Therefore, be holy and follow me. Notice the order of that. In the, uh, for those of you that are familiar with the scriptures, notice the story of Exodus. Does God give them the law first or does he rescue them from Egypt first? He rescues them from Egypt before he gives them the law. But oftentimes in our own lives, when it comes to our story, we reverse those two. Because we believe that I must obey. I must do these things. I must live this life. And then I'm in. Then I get rescued. But the Israelites weren't worth rescuing when they were in Egypt. They were just like the Egyptians. Sinners deserving death. And yet God, because he's a benevolent, loving God, chose to come in and still redeem them. Then he gives them the law. That is the fundamental difference between every other religion and Christianity. Every other religion says this. Do these things and then you're in. Then God will show up. Then God will give you what you want. Then God will rescue you and save you. Christianity says God has rescued you. God has redeemed you. God has saved you. God has bought you back to be his people. And he wants to be your master. Now, therefore, obey and follow him. We as Christians, again, can enter this story because every story is God's story. I know for me, about nine times out of ten, when I sin, it's because I've forgotten who I've belonged to. I've forgotten what God has done for me. I have forgotten the story that God is spinning and his redemption in my life. And, and it's not that it's escaped my memory. It's just not on the forefront of my mind. I'm, I'm not believing in the pleasure and power and beauty that the gospel has for me. And this manifests itself in two ways. One, I either consider the gospel to be lacking what I really want. And so I lie, I cheat, I steal, I lust, I gossip to get what I want because I believe my new master, Jesus Christ, is holding out on me. 
doesn't really have what it takes to satisfy me. And that's why I sin. Or it manifests itself this way. I consider the gospel too good to be true. That that can't really be the case. I must do something to earn, to maintain this love that I've received from my new master. And in order to keep him and appease him from turning from his love for me, I must do something. But those are completely contrary to the gospel and the freedom that it provides. Augustine taught that true freedom isn't choice or lack of constraint. True freedom is being who you're meant to be. And being who you're meant to be is God's because it's God's story. And he has redeemed you and he wants you to belong to him. Again, another thing that's amazing about the story of the Israelites and for you and for me, if we claim the name of Christ here this morning, is that even though we are slaves of Christ, God doesn't treat us as slaves. God treats us as sons and daughters. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. Israel in Exodus is literally called God's firstborn. If we are sons and daughters of the creator of the world, that makes you and me royalty. When someone who is royal makes the tabloids for things that they shouldn't be doing, why is that news? Because they don't know who they are. They don't know the, what they've grown up in. They don't know their identity. When we sin, when we run back to our old masters, we are forgetting who we are and who we belong to. There are two events to this story of Exodus, the Passover and the Red Sea. And they connect to actually two events in the Christian life. This is the same story. The same story in Exodus is our story as Christians. Consider this. In the accounts of Exodus, the Passover event was to be remembered. It was something to be commemorated. Not as an act that uh, was a sacrifice so that God would forgive Israel all over again and remove that penalty of judgment. But it was done because Israel was already free from that punishment. And consider that the Passover was just not another thing that God commanded the Israelites to do. If you actually read the Exodus account, they literally changed the entire calendar over this. It became the Israelites' identity. And when they reenacted Passover, they participated in it as a living reality of their lives, as their story. Do you not realize that as Christians, we claim the exact same story? But our story is greater. Luke twenty-two fourteen and 20 says, When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, this is Jesus, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you. Jesus is literally celebrating what we read about in Exodus that the Israelites are supposed to be commemorating. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to take it a step further. It's the same story, but it's a better story. And he says this, For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body. I am the new Passover lamb. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. I am the new Passover lamb. It is shed for you. Do you not see that our story is the same as the Israelites? Communion isn't just another thing we do on our to-do list. Our entire world gets turned upside down by this event. Do you not realize that it's not simply a calendar that changes by the event of Christ? We've literally split the ages on this event. A.D. and B.C. It's our identity, our story. And when we reenact it, we're literally claiming that the bread, the body of Christ, the blood represented by the juice is literally our Passover lamb. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he secured and satisfied the judgment of God for our sins. 
that death is no longer something we have to fear. This morning, if you've placed your faith in Christ, we're going to be taking communion. I encourage you to come to this table realizing that you are entering into the story God is telling. That when you come to this table, you are claiming that Christ is your Passover lamb. And that you are entering into God's story because every story is his. The second event that we read about this morning is the crossing of the Red Sea. And that actually connects to baptism. Again, I'm not making this up. I didn't get this from some random detail uh, in Scripture. The New Testament authors saw it this way. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2. Now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea and were all, what's that word? Baptized into Moses and in the cloud of the sea. Now this confusing verse, I understand that, but let me explain this uh, really simply. Who was the first one to enter into the Red Sea? Moses. Moses was the mediator. Moses was the mediator. We learned that from the Red Uh, from the Exodus account. The Israelites crossed through by faith and were therefore saved. The Egyptians crossed through without faith and they were killed. Why? Because the Israelites trusted in the words of Moses as their mediator. Moses was the first to go through. You and I have a mediator that's gone through first. And his name is Jesus if we trust in his words and cross our own Red Sea of sorts, as we enter into the baptism waters, we are essentially saying the same thing that the Israelites did, that we have faith in our mediator. What I find so fascinating is that the Israelites were only at the Red Sea because a lamb had been slaughtered. And when they crossed through on the other side, didn't they look back and see their dead master? Again, do you not see that this is our story? When we come to the baptismal waters, what reason do we have to get in those waters? There is no reason except for one. A lamb was killed. His name is Jesus. And when we go under the waters, our entire life, our old way of living, our cruel master of sin and death dies in those waters. And when we rise up and we look back, we see that they're dead. And when we come out, we come to our new life following our new master, Jesus. We're running out of time, so I'm going to blaze through the end of this. Romans 6, 1 through 4 talks about this. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus, he's our mediator, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the new way of life. I want us to notice something about Romans 6, and I didn't catch this until this week. Romans 6 is not an argument to get baptized. Romans 6 is an argument for those that have already been baptized. Do you remember your baptism? Are you looking back on your baptism like the Israelites would have looked back to see their old slave masters dead? Are you looking back to see your old slave master of sin and your old way of life dead? And looking forward to your new master who wants to lead you into life, just like the Israelites looked towards their new master who would lead them into deliverance. The Red Sea served as a reminder for the Israelites. Our baptism should... uh, be a reminder for us. If you've never been baptized, please stick around. We want to talk to you about that. But for those of that you have been baptized, are you remembering it as a commemoration of your new life in Christ? That when you head out into the world and you face temptations, you know that God has dealt with the primary problem of your life, and that is sin. And if God has dealt with the primary problem of your life, every other problem means that it's of a lesser value. If God is for you, who can be against you, the scriptures declare? We're going to sing a song, too, called Beneath the Waters. Its lyrics say, I will rise. That means I won't go back to my old master of sin. By faith, I'm justified. The Passover lamb has satisfied God's judgment. I'm here to testify 
that I was dead in my sins, but I will rise. I've been baptized. I've embraced my new freedom in Christ. The Passover lamb, the Red Sea crossing. It's our story as Christians, but it's a better story because our story points to the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And our Red Sea crossing is not just through an ocean. Our Red Sea crossing is one of death to life. Every story is God's story. I'm going to invite the worship team to come out. And we're going to take communion here this morning. So if you're an elder, I would encourage you to come up and prepare the elements for us to take. And as they make their way up, would you just pray with me? Jesus, I ask that this morning every single person would leave this place knowing that they are invited into a great drama. A story that you are ultimately narrating, that you are ultimately controlling, a story that you yourself entered into as your son. And that, God, as we look back on your history and what you've been doing, God, it's the same story. It's one of redemption. That you've redeemed the Israelites just like you want to redeem us this morning. That just as a Passover lamb was sacrificed, you too were sacrificed as our Passover lamb. That just as the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea, we crossed through the waters in our baptism. Will we commemorate both and remember who we belong to? God, I ask that you would do a work. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. When you are ready, I encourage you to come forward and take the elements this morning. And when you're ready, I encourage you to sing this song. And as you do both, would you remember every story is God's story and that he's inviting you into it?